Well, hello, uh, and welcome again to Citizens. Uh, my name is David, I go by DC, and I serve as the Family Life Pastor here. So glad to see you all, and uh, to spend uh, this time uh, together each and every Sunday to worship God. Uh, I have the honor of sharing God's Word uh, with us today. Uh, we are near the end of our uh, Fruit of the Spirit series. Uh, for the past few months, we've been learning about and exploring uh, the different qualities of this fruit uh, that the Holy Spirit seeks to supernaturally uh, produce in every one of us. And what this fruit does, it represents a new way of living, a new way of thinking, of seeing the world and relating with others. You know, just as you would expect a lemon tree to bear lemons and an apple tree apples, uh, the Christian life should produce a Christ-like life. Just makes sense. Uh, the Holy Spirit is actively working in us uh, in the Christian life to conform us in greater degrees to the person of Jesus Christ. And we discover that this is a lifelong journey and lifelong process. Uh, change and trans transformation does not come easy because it's not simply a matter of taking our lives and planting ourselves in the gospel uh, because that assumes that we're not planted elsewhere already. Uh, no, we learned that before Jesus, We've lived and operate, operated in an ecosystem, in an environment, in which Paul calls the works of the flesh. And from this ecosystem, we form our identity, uh, we create meaning, and we develop patterns of living. And it is familiar and comfortable for us. And so the Spirit then is working actively in loosening the soil that is surrounding our roots, exposing its weaknesses and inadequacies with the goal to replant ourselves in the life, love, and grace of Jesus Christ. So it's about uprooting and then replanting. And this process can be uncomfortable, disorienting, and at times painful. In our family, we lived in Temple City for the past two years, and for the first time, we had a front yard a small little lawn that we had. It was good and bad, good because our kids can play in that small space, but it's bad because now I have to maintain appearances, right? Because I don't want our, uh, our neighbors to judge us. You gotta make sure and make, make sure it's nice and clean. And I discovered that there were weeds everywhere in this front yard. And so uh, what I did as a noob is I just got a lawnmower and a weed whacker thinking that if I just trim off the top that it will get rid of the weeds. And we all know that's not how you get rid of weeds. You have to dig deep, and you've got to pluck them out in order to get rid of them. So after a couple months of trying to maintain appearances and getting frustrated, uh, we call the landscapers, because uh, I have a bad back. I can't get down and do that work. So we call the landscapers, and I watch them get rid of these weeds. And man, it was hard work, because they have to dig deep. They have to unearth all the soil, and that's how they get that. How, that's how they got rid of the weeds. You know, some of us, we approach change in a similar way of just kind of mowing off the top, right? Making superficial modifications, trying to alter our behavior, or even maybe change our surroundings. But eventually, after a while, what happens is selfishness comes back. Anxiety and hopelessness comes back. The feeling, feelings of bitterness and resentment resentment have a way of always coming back. And so the Spirit wants us to dig deeper. 
And he wants us to invite us to dig a little bit deeper. And he does this so that he can lead us to a life of true joy and freedom. And so we've been learning about the different qualities of this fruit in this framework of freedom. So we learned about kindness as a freedom from apathy, goodness, freedom from brokenness, and faithfulness, freedom from unbelief. And today we have another quality, and that is gentleness. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, and we'll read verses 16 through 25. I'm reading from the ESV, and like we've been doing for the past few months, I'll read the first few verses, and when we get to verse 22, I'm going to ask us to read it together. The verses are going to be going up on the screen behind me. Uh, Let's give our full attention as I read God's word for us. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now together one voice. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law and those who belong to christ jesus has crucified the flesh with his passions and desires if we live by the spirit let us also keep in step with the spirit amen Uh, in 2014 um, i stepped away from full-time vocational ministry Uh, and at the time uh, jane and i we've been married for a few years and we had our firstborn son deacon he was about a little over a year old Uh, And we moved up to Seattle, and Jane, as a teacher, she quickly found a job. But uh, for me, I had a harder time uh, finding a job in the marketplace. And as I was putting my resume together, I started to grow anxious because previous uh, to me applying, all seven years was dedicated to serving the local church. Uh, And I still remember the questions that I got asked and even the, the looks that I got sitting in those interview tables with teams interviewing me. Uh, basically saying, what are you doing here? Uh, Because all the experience that I gained and all the knowledge that I had didn't translate into the marketplace. I had nothing to offer um, working in any industry in Seattle. Um, But, you know, long story short, by God's grace and through different connections, I got a job as a project coordinator at a tech company. You know, of all the qualities of the fruit of the Spirit, I think gentleness is one of those that doesn't translate well in our real world. We don't see any real-world value in gentleness. It's not a sought-after quality. Right? I don't think anyone would be impressed if we put on our resume as one of our strengths, gentleness, unless you're maybe applying to be a nanny. Right? And so it's a fruit that can be overlooked, dismissed, and seen as irrelevant. You know, Dylan, uh, my four-year-old daughter, is naturally aggressive. And she plays really rough with my 10-month-old daughter. And so every single day, I'm just constantly telling her, hey, you've got to be a little bit more gentle with her. 
You can't play the same way uh, with Danny as you do with your older brother and sister. So I'm like constantly saying, be gentle, be gentle. But with my seven-year-old daughter who's playing soccer for the first time, I'm trying to teach her the opposite. I'm like, you got to be more aggressive. And if you've seen Devin, she, is, she doesn't look like a first grader. She looks like a third grader. She is the tallest and biggest on the soccer field. And so I'm like trying to teach her, hey, you can use your body and, you know, be a little bit more aggressive. You can dominate if you really want to. And so many of us, when we, when we think about gen- gentleness, we kind of have these ideas in our minds. And unfortunately, our world often associates gentleness with weakness, timidity, or being passive. But when we study the Bible and we observe the different people that possess this quality of gentleness, it can't be further from the truth. And actually, our world is desperate, actually, for this fruit of gentleness. Moses, right, who was the one to help rescue about a million people from Egypt, had the quality of gentleness. He was known to be gentle. The psalmist says this about God, your right hand upholds me and your gentleness makes me great. And there's only one place in all the gospel writings where Jesus gives us an inside look, an insight into his own heart. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30. And this is what he says of himself. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus' heart is gentle. You know, there's a book titled Gentle and Lonely, and uh, it's by Dane Ortland. I highly recommend it because it unpacks the heart of Jesus. If you want to know who Jesus is, what he is like, I highly recommend this book. The Greek word for gentle is praus. Praus. It can also mean meek. It talks about humility. And no one, by studying the life of Jesus, by seeing how he treated others, and even his path to the cross, would ever conclude that Jesus is timid, that he is weak, and that he is passive. This is a defining character of Jesus. And Jesus also taught in his first sermon, probably the greatest sermon uh, of all time, this is what he said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. So what does it mean to be gentle? What does it mean to be meek? You know, today I want to approach this fruit a little bit differently. I, I want to start by looking at the antithesis of gentleness or the opposite of meekness. Because I think understanding the anti-fruit can help define what it really means to be gentle. You know, we could have titled this sermon a number of different ways. Gentleness, freedom from harshness. Gentleness, freedom from a critical heart. Or freedom from being a jerk. Any of those would have worked. We live in a harsh world, hostile, and to be honest, full of jerks. Right, there's someone you're probably thinking about right now right, that fits this description. If they're sitting next to you, don't look at them. Just pay attention, focus. Right? 
It's the type of person that is cold towards others, an attitude that everyone is guilty until proven innocent, always thinking the worst, celebrates when others fail, and easily dismissive of others, especially those that are different than us. Harshness. I believe it's a learned behavior. You know, some of us, we grew up in an abusive and harsh environment. Our parents were always criticizing, impossible to appease. Nothing you ever did would make them happy. Or maybe you grew up in a church uh, environment that was militant, right? Where God wasn't a good father, but God was rather a drill sergeant, constantly getting on your case for not being better, doing better, or being moral. Or maybe you had an overbearing, unreasonable boss. You know, there are reasons why we have a heart that is cold and distant towards others. There's a reason why our hearts are calloused, where we're harsh towards other people. You know, there are moments in my marriage and as a father where I would be coming down so hard on Jane and the kids. And for me, it's like a deja vu moment. It looks familiar. It feels like like something I've experienced before. You know, because we have these memories tucked away that have a way of surfacing in relationships, right? The experience that I had with my dad growing up, you think, oh, I'm not going to do that, but has a way of resurfacing. So we have deeply personal experiences that shape our hearts this way. But then we have to consider the world that we live in. Everything is contentious. It's always us against them, right versus left, pro-choice versus pro-life, red versus blue. We are literally in the middle of midterm elections. And in the world of politics, there's no room for gentleness and meekness. It's always about proving the candidate wrong, bringing up their past, smear tactics, And as we're watching this unfold before our eyes, we are inheriting the spirit of harshness. We start doing the same thing. We start vilifying and hardening our hearts towards those whom we disagree with. But what's underneath all of this? What's underneath harshness, a critical heart, a dismissive attitude? What explains division and hatred Why are we so hostile towards one another? Why are we so harsh with other people, with our spouse or with our kids? If we peel it all back, what we will find is self-righteousness. It's the underlying disease that plagues our world and explains the brokenness of all our relationships. I am right, you are wrong. You know, you would think like, a person like Jesus, right, would be wanted and welcomed by everyone, right? He was a brilliant teacher, kind and compassionate, so generous with others. He was fun to be around. You would think everyone would want to be with Jesus, but there was one particular group that hated him, that wanted nothing to do with him. They were the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees, they were constantly looking for ways to cancel him and to get rid of him. Why? Why? 
because Jesus challenged their understanding of righteousness and the system that they created around it. See, the Pharisees were in charge of, very, of something very particular and specific in the temple. They were in charge of purity laws. And so they studied the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and they were the gatekeepers of purity for their religion. But in addition to the Torah, they had the oral traditions, which brought greater sophistication to the rituals for purity, which made it very difficult for anyone to experience God. They used the law to determine who was in and who was not, who was acceptable and who wasn't acceptable. Their application of the law kept, people's, kept people at an arm's length from experiencing God and his blessing and his goodness. And that is why Jesus accused them of being oppressive, of being a burden, of bringing down a weight on their own people. Jesus was a threat to their way of life. Jesus was a threat to their righteousness. He challenged their definitions of worth and acceptance. And not only that, the very people that the Pharisees wanted to keep away, Jesus embraced. The people that they threw away, Jesus wanted to eat with, fellowship with, and love on. See, the religious leaders, in their efforts to be faithful to the letter of the law, they failed to observe the spirit of the law. And a prime example was this, when Jesus was encountered by a man on the Sabbath day who had a shriveled hand, the Pharisees were watching him, seeing what he was going to do. And then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? This was a trap. If they gave the right answer, they would discredit their tradition and they'll give credit to Jesus. And so they didn't answer at all. And so Jesus heals this man. And what did the religious leaders start doing then? They plotted to kill Jesus at that moment. But this is what self-righteousness does. This is how it works. In order to preserve it, we must ward off any threats Self-righteousness blinds us from seeing the humanity in others and so deny grace and mercy to those in need. See, the law was never meant to be used to create a complex system to de determine who was in and who was out. That was not God's intent in giving the law. The law was given to demonstrate how the hard truth that no one on their own can actually get in, that they were in need of saving Jesus gave this parable about self-righteousness in Luke 18, verses 9 through 12. He, being Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The Pharisee based his standing with God by comparing and contrasting his life with other men. And it's funny, the worst of other men. 
You know, comparison is a really interesting way of gauging one's righteousness because you have to be highly selective to find people you're better than. But at the same time, you have to conveniently ignore all those that are better than you. It doesn't work. The tax collector had a different approach to God, verses 13 through 14. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax collector couldn't even look up at God. So while the Pharisee looked around him horizontally, the tax collector lifted up his eyes, and he could barely look up because he compared himself to God and realized he was desperate for God's mercy to be justified. You know, Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For you have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. You know, it's really interesting. We have to do one of two things to think that our righteousness is sufficient for God's approval. We either have to dilute God's holiness or we have to exaggerate our righteousness. Those are the only two options to think that my righteousness can be approved by God. We have to make God less than who he is, or we have to make ourselves more than who we are. Either error will create a counterfeit righteousness. You know, self-righteousness is natural for all of us. We all want to be justified in what we think, how we live, and how we treat others. And because we have to protect and preserve what we believe to be right and good, we can't help but be hostile towards others who pose a threat to that way of life. When we are our own source of righteousness, there's too much at stake, and there's too much to lose. And therefore, we have to be harsh. We have to be aggressive. You know, the reason why marriage is so challenging is because you're intentionally inviting someone to challenge your ideas of righteousness. That's what marriage is. But you'll quickly find out that you're not right all the time. It's actually quite the opposite. You're wrong. But this happens also with kids as well, who have no understanding of your righteousness, no formation of what's right and wrong. They are a constant disruption to your way of life. But the same could be said of community. If you stick around long enough and you engage with one another in community, you'll find out that we're different, that people have differing views, personalities and preferences. People, community, challenge, challenges your source of righteousness. And this is the world that we live in competing sources of righteousness that we all carry with us. So the question is, how do we cultivate gentleness when we have passionate disagreements with one another? How do we do this? 
Have you ever had an encounter uh, with someone that completely shatters your self-perception? That you meet with someone and you thought you were this one thing, but you're actually not because of this one meeting? I have had that experience being here at Citizens, uh, to be honest. Uh, For those that don't know me, um, I had a reputation of being the nice pastor. That was my reputation. That all changed when I came to Citizens. I've been here about eight months, and I've been interacting with Pastor Jason, our lead pastor. And after interacting with him, I realized, yeah, I don't think I'm that nice. I actually kind of feel, <laughs> feel like a jerk around him. That's how nice our lead pastor is. He is so kind. And I'm like, I don't think I'm that nice. Another silly example. I thought I loved pho. Like, and, you know, people know me as someone who really loves pho. But Jason invited me over to dinner once, and he got pho. And as I was watching him, he goes to his cupboard, and he brings out a pho bowl. Not just a regular bowl, a pho bowl that you will find at a restaurant, an extra large one. And then he also proceeds to bring out the spoon that you will find at pho restaurants. And I just saw him, like, just enjoy this pho in his own bowl. I'm like, oh, I don't know if I love pho anymore. He loves pho. My self-perception just completely shattered. I know those are silly examples, but, you know, Simon Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples, had an encounter with Jesus that flipped his world upside down. His profession was a fisherman, and Jesus met him while fishing. And the night previous, he couldn't catch anything. But then Jesus tells him, hey, take out your boat, and why don't you cast out your net there? And after following Jesus' instruction, he caught the biggest catch of his life. And what does Simon Peter do? He falls to his knees. He absolutely crumbles and says, Jesus, get away from me, for I am a sinner. Self-perception shattered. But what what then does Jesus tell him to do? Come be with me. Come, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. See, while self-righteousness creates greater separation, gentleness seeks to close the gap. While spiritual pride evaluates others primarily through a lens of morality, gentleness sees others as image bearers worthy of love and grace. While self-righteousness stays perched up high on its nest, meekness condescends and stoops down low. This is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Gentleness is a quality found in one who knows their position and privilege not to be found in themselves, but found in Jesus Christ. Gentleness is a quality found in one who knows their position and privilege, not to be found in themselves, but be found in Jesus Christ. And because that position and privilege is permanent and secure in him, no one can threaten it. No one can take it away. This is how grace radically transforms our hearts question I want to ask you is, are you warm towards others? 
are you gentle? Is there a humility about you that is attractive to others in this world and those around you? If you're realizing that there is this just hole, right, in your heart where you're not able to be gentle towards others, there are two encounters we need to have on a regular basis to cultivate gentleness and meekness. The first encounter is this. We need to encounter the righteousness of Christ. We need to come face to face with the perfection of Jesus Christ. Because when we look at his life and we listen to his teaching, we see a man not not only who knew the law, but actually perfectly obeyed it without any flaw. He loved the unlovable. He touched the untouchable. He subjected himself to a life of temptation, but never gave in. He lived a perfect life. And so when we place our lives in the mirror of the righteousness of Christ, we can't help but fall apart. We can't help but see that we're inadequate, we're flawed. There's holes in our righteousness. We'll see all our blemishes. But in that moment, we need to encounter the gentleness of Christ. And this is the second encounter we need, his loving embrace. Or even though we feel so inadequate, Jesus says, hey, I want to eat with you. Hey, I want you to come and be with me. I want you to experience my love. This is Jesus Christ. He came down from his position. He laid aside his heavenly privileges to come down and be with us, to involve himself in our mess. And then on that cross, he carried all our brokenness, paying the penalty we could not pay. He got rid uh, and removed the stain and stench of our sins so that we can be with our God, God the Father, to be reconciled to him. Not only that, not only does he get rid of sin, he then clothes us with his righteousness, saying, hey, my perfect record I give to you. It is now yours. We need both. The righteousness of Christ and his gentleness, we need to experience both. Because if, if we only encounter the perfection of Jesus, we will just be lost. We will always fall short. In shame and guilt, we would want to hide. But if we only encounter the gentleness of Jesus, we will see no change in our lives because Jesus will only become that friend that is always agreeing to our decisions, permitting to do whatever we want. And so we will see no change. We need both. You know, Tim Keller, one of my favorite Christian thinkers and authors, he puts it so perfectly. This is what he says, quote, We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believed. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dare hoped. Gentleness is cultivated within those two truths. I'm far worse than I think I am, and I'm so much more loved than I can imagine. You know, when we experience this, when we experience the embrace of Christ, knowing his absolute righteousness and our complete sinfulness, it does something to the heart. It melts away our own righteousness. 
It melts away the harshness, the vitriol, and animosity by making us right with God. And when we counter this Jesus, we can then extend gentleness to others, to love those that disagree with us, to even move towards our enemies. Church, I want to ask us to consider, where are you taking your cues from? What is the source of your righteousness? And could that be the reason why you lack gentleness? Practically speaking, what that might mean is for us to just kind of take a break from Twitter. Take a break from social media. Because that is constantly feeding us harshness, is it not? Right? Look at the world we live in. So divisive. To take a break and to take up Jesus' invitation where he says, learn from me. Learn from my heart that is gentle and lowly. Citizens, the, the charge for us and the invitation is for us to engage the heart of Christ together so that we can be that alternative community that places people before politics and positions so that we can remind each other of who Jesus is so that we can have a solid core, but we can have an exterior that is soft towards others. May we be this community that reflects this amazing grace, this unique gospel message, that we are far worse than we think, but we are far more loved than we can dare imagine. Let's pray. You know, I want to invite us to consider your heart today, where is your heart today? Are you cold, calloused towards others? If you're struggling with this fruit of gentleness, I want to invite you to give your heart and ask the Spirit to soften it. To ask the Spirit to open your eyes to see the righteousness of Christ, but also his warmth. If that's you today, I just want to give you a moment to pray that. And I'll close us in prayer after a few moments. Father, we confess that our hearts are often beaten down, calloused, discouraged, dirtied because of our experiences, because of this world that we live in. There's so much hatred, division, so much brokenness. Because of that, we lack empathy, we lack warmth. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help loosen the soil around our hearts. Um, help us, Lord, to see that our own source of righteousness cannot measure up to your perfection. And in that state of being exposed and vulnerable, knowing that we are inadequate, 
Help us to see our Savior hanging on that cross, loving his enemies, dying for our sins, and embracing us as his own. We need your help. This world is desperate to see the meekness and gentleness of Christ, and you have called the church to be that. Help us, Lord, with one another in community to model this. Help us engage you each and every day, knowing your perfection and knowing your perfect love for us. Help us, Lord. And for those of us who are just struggling in life, who are dealing with past trauma and hurt, I ask that you bring healing today. That we would run into your arms, Lord, and to know what it means to be loved. Thank you that you give us the Holy Spirit to help cultivate these fruit. May we grow constantly in your love. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.